Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast, the official podcast of the Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. Every month, Chris John Riley and myself, Martin McKay, share informal conversations with security professionals from around the globe. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone, and any sarcasm you hear is purely intentional. For more information on FIRST or this podcast, please check out FIRST.org. Hello, this is Martin McKay and Chris John Riley, and I are joined today by Umer Bukhari. I hope I pronounced that right. You do a good job. Um, you are the head of Ericsson's P-Cert, and yesterday you gave a talk Extraordinary Vulnerability... Yeah, that's so easy for me to say. Extraordinary Vulnerability Coordination. Exactly. There are two uses of that process, right? One is to actually respond to extraordinary vulnerabilities, and the second is to get tongue-twisted, exactly as you did. <laughs> well, and let's let's start off there, because, and let's talk about what do you mean by extraordinary? I mean, you gave examples of Log4j yesterday, but how does that differ from an ordinary vulnerability coordination process? Yeah, right. Uh, I think that's a good question because if you look at it, almost every organization have a vulnerability coordination process, vulnerability response process. But those processes are usually made to cater for the vulnerabilities as they happen in the day, day-to-day activities. Respond to them, let's say, mostly five to ten products, let's say twenty products from your portfolio might be affected. So the the amount of effort that you need to put is somewhat restricted and you can control it with a certain amount of people. But when we go towards the extraordinary concept, it's much more about the likes of log for shell as uh, as you just mentioned, where the response might be for hundreds of products, which you might not even know. And then you have to act very, very quickly. So the amount of work that needs to be done is huge and it needs to be done very, very quickly and there might be a need for expedited timelines. So all of these pressure put on is what we call an extraordinary vulnerability. So it's just a level higher than the usual vulnerability process. All of this makes sense, but I guess the question is, at what point do you know that you need to jump into that process, right? It's, it's very tricky. You get the information about a vulnerability. You think, sure, standard process. And then suddenly you realize at a certain point, actually, we're going to need to bring in the big guns. This is exactly the right question. And I think this is the first thing, uh, the part of the process, there are two things that we define in there. And the most important steps as we see it are the entry criteria and the exit criteria, because exactly, you need to know when do you do that. And as part of the process, how we have uh, conceptualized it, you do the rating of the vulnerability, of course, within your organization. And here, when I say the severity rating, I don't mean um, the severity rating directly from the vendor or the open source component itself, but how does it impact your portfolio, your own rating from your PCERT or your development organization. And on top of that, you need to pass two or three criteria. That could be a little bit different for each organization, but that really includes, for example, the impact, as I said, is huge. It's hundreds of products in your portfolio that are impacted, or it could be that many, many customers are starting to ask for it. You don't really start it right away, right? You you did the check today and you saw, okay, it is impacting 50 or 60 products in my portfolio. 
but maybe it's not at the right level that we should do all this big effort because that's that's a point we have to always realize. It's a heavy and a costly process. So it has to be a conscious decision that we will go in this direction. But let's say three days pass and uh, now hundreds of your customers are starting to ask about it. It means that there is attention on this process, uh, on, on this vulnerability, and we really will have to attend to it. And to attend to it in next four to five days in a good way, this is where this process comes in and it will cross that entry criteria and we have also introduced the concept of a mandated decision maker it could be the CISO in your organization your chief information security officer in case of us it's the chief product security officer who is mandated we propose the start of this process towards the decision maker and then a collective decision is made to go for it well a large part of what you pointed out with your with the EVCCCC process which is a joke. You can get into that <laughs> right. in a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, but is that this is a process that instead of being internal to the engineering team or internal to the IT and security team, it's a process that involves the entire company because from the CEO on down. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, EVCCC, as you said, that's a, that's a good point. Um, so we started EVC is uh, just a short for uh, Extraordinary Vulnerability Coordination, which is a tongue twister of its own. So we started to go with the abbreviation EVC. Then we were looking for also an abbreviation for what is the command center that runs it. So it became Extraordinary Vulnerability Coordination Command Center, EVCCC. But I decided to drop one of the C's at least uh, to make it a little bit easier. But it, you're right. This is exactly the reason why we are trying to separate this process because in usual vulnerability response, it will be, let's say, three uh, development teams, five development teams that are involved. In this case, it might be all of the development teams that you might have in your portfolio who are involved. Uh, there, there are three main verticals, as we call it, for the process to work. The first one is the chairperson, a mandated chairperson to lead this coordination who's uh, calls are then accepted by everyone in the company when the process is running. The second body, as we call it, is the decision-making body. We call it the core group. And this is where we say that all the necessary stakeholders from the company need to be represented be it the leaders of your development team, security heads, your enterprise security, even because of cloud portfolio, your uh, security heads near the customer, marketing, marketing and communication departments, legal, sales, all of these have to be on a core team uh, who makes the decision collectively. Because if we don't do that in this sort of a situation when the panic hits uh, and you need to respond very quickly, it might be that people are making different decisions in different corners of the company and that might become a problem. So we want all the decisions coming from this core group and uh, all of the stakeholders represented there. So the decisions are common. Some of this started with, with the, the WannaCry vulnerability where suddenly it's something that it's affecting everyone. It's affecting the entire environment. And everybody's panicking. And I think that's actually what we're seeing now with is that this is going to be becoming an increasingly common problem as vulnerabilities are found that affect large swaths of the Internet. I don't think this I think this is something people have to be including into their instant response process because that level of request from customers is going to become more and more common as time goes by. Absolutely. And uh, that's exactly the reason we have to pull off a massive amount of work. And that's the amount of work that no PCER team or 
no development team or any decision maker can do it on its own. So we need to pull in resources from all of our company and uh, we need to ensure that there is a process that makes it run coherently. And that's uh, what we are proposing. There are eight basically what we call them execution functions within the extraordinary vulnerability coordination process that we are proposing. So we can take care of all such things like the vulnerability remediation stream, impact analysis, keeping up with the situational picture, uh, or even managing the stakeholders. These are all execution functions within the process to make sure that we are working on these in parallel and can deliver in a very short period of time. One of the things that uh, I was happy to see in in the the EVCC or EVC or EVCCC was uh, specific areas and functions dedicated to external and internal communications keeping stakeholders in the loop you know those are all very very key things that often get overlooked when you're dealing with an all hands on deck incident everyone's just concentrated on let's get this patch now let's get this fixed let's get this rolled out and people Sometimes you know you, you get the call from your VP is like where are we at and the answer is I have no idea we have a hundred developers working on this right now I, it's going to take me three hours to get you an update and you have to interrupt everyone's process so it's great to see that do you see other companies including that kind of thing in their processes or is this very much a, a gap I think if you like it or not every company is doing that either consciously or unconsciously, right? Because the VPs are asking those questions for a reason. They are answerable elsewhere. So that information has to be provided. And this was a gap uh, for us, and I think uh, commonly in the industry that we saw. And the adverse effect that comes from it is onto the operational teams, right? When you have to provide the situational awareness uh, about this very often, it's the same team that's trying to actually pull off the other work of remediation and actually knowing it. Every minute that they spend on getting that uh, situational picture update together for any of the stakeholder is time away from the actual work. That's why we decided that this really has to be a function of its own that runs in parallel collects the information from all different stakeholders and functions and put it together for whoever needs it. I, I just would posit that prior to to WannaCry and Log4Shell, that in a lot of cases, the incident response process for this would be the head of, of engineering saying, we accept the risk, and the CEO, the customers having no vulner, no visibility into it, but now we've hit a different stage where, hey, the next log for shell comes up. Everybody knows within hours that this is a concern. You can't sweep it under the rug. You have to tell the CEO, you have to tell everyone that you're responding to it and dealing with it. And this is one of the most important parts. This is really the most important part because not just internally, you have to go out to your customers. And uh, one of the things that really I think everyone saw with the log for shell, for example, is incomplete information and very continuously changing situation. But you have the pressure to go out with what level are you at with your investigation and all such things. And if you're not coordinated, the strength of this process is really that we are bringing all the decision makers to the same core team to make a common decision because it's very uh, easy that it starts happening that communication departments under pressure, they might just start going out with some, some sort of messages that we are going to deliver on XYZ timeline, which might not be practical at all in the end. So the engineering and communication and all the rest of the parts need to work together. That's absolutely essential. And we cannot just uh, have days or weeks before we need to do that. We might It might be hours or minutes before we need to have a response. 
I mean, I think what's interesting about Log4 Shell as an example, and it's something that I think it's very easy for me to say, <laughs> Log4 Shell, say it three times into a mirror. Um, but it, it's it's something that I think will be repeated again, sadly, um, as with everything. It's, it's very much a case of you're trying to patch product vulnerabilities due to issues with with underlying libraries while you're doing that there's another area of your organization who's trying to do the flip side which is patch other people's software that you rely on you know no enterprise runs software that they write from scratch everyone uses third-party software in one way shape or form so you have not only products but you also have internal systems that you've developed that may use the library you have external third parties you're using SaaS products there's there's this panic from various areas of the organization and and even the evcc process is one work stream amongst three or four work streams where you're part of the overall response yeah exactly and uh, there is a function uh, execution function within the process that we call called liaison function and the reason for having that is exactly this Let's hook into all those other processes that are also running, have a representative from those processes in this process, and maybe have someone from who is aware with the work going on in EVC onto those forums so we can stay in sync. Um, and I think you also left a very important point also there. Like when this happens, um, things need to start up pretty quickly. And having a process is not just enough. We really need to make sure that this is rehearsed, this is understood within all the bigger organization and not the security teams only or only your P-cert or C-cert, your engineering staff, your marketing and communication sales, your decision makers even, they they need to be aware of it. You need to have done some practice runs of this with them. So it makes it predictable for everyone wh- what role are they going to fall into and it makes it also predictable for the decision makers. What are we going to ask them to do in this sort of a situation? is exactly what we are trying to pull off with the entry and exit criteria. Really what you're describing with the VCC is a very mature incident response program and getting the, the executives involved. If I'm somebody who is at a smaller company or does not it has a, a process that we can do with day-to-day incident and vulnerability response, how do we start looking at EVCC and other programs to develop that at, at that level. We can't. You can't just make that jump. You've got to build years of 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 how to put it persuasion into the process. Yeah, this is this is exactly. I think uh, what we are trying to do exactly as you said. There might be an incident response process, and a lot of inspiration we have taken in this process is from incident response processes because I have to say they are more mature. Um, incident response has been going on for a while but when it comes to vulnerabilities there are certain differences and distinctions and that's what we are just trying to cater for in this process and what we are trying to do is to utilize as many existing processes within the organization as possible so this is the top layer coordination layer and then it hooks into the organization's uh, uh, existing processes uh, to run run those things as much as possible so the the process it looks very intricate. There's a lot of different moving parts here. There's a lot of different teams involved. It's obviously a large expense. You know, how do you get the buy-in from execs to create that process, knowing the expense, and also how do you set the criteria to say, okay, we're done now, we're finished, we can move out of this process. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's great. Having a clear entry and exit criteria is uh, what 
makes it easier for the decision makers, as I said, uh, to know when we are starting. And for exit criteria, what we have uh, gone with is a, a little bit interesting approach. There, what we are proposing is that we should have an ambition level approach um, so it can continue as long as you want. For example, the least amount of uh, ambition level could be that uh, EVC process stops when you have investigated all of your portfolio for impact and then the remediation part is done by your normal vulnerability remediation process. You do the communication and then you leave the rest. Or next ambition level with more investment, more effort could be that you uh, have done um, you have done the security advisories for all of your products, that's when you stop. Or there could also be an extreme level of ambition where you only stop when all of your uh, products in your uh, in your customers have been patched. Um, so, so this is what gives the ambition level and the decision-making power to the decision-makers to choose where is it that we want to stop uh, and then hand over the process to the to the existing processes within the company for vulnerability management. Well, speaking of exit criteria, I think Chris and I have run out of semi-intelligent questions to ask you. So, Umer, I would like to thank you a lot for your presentation and for spending a few minutes of your time with us. Um, it was interesting to see just this representation of a very mature process that some people, or a lot of people, probably have never been able to see. Absolutely, and that's the hope, um, to share this uh, information with the community, and uh, I hope that others could find at least an inspiration um, to, to do something similar within their organizations. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the First Impressions Podcast and thanks to this week's guest. You can find Chris John Riley on Twitter at Chris John Riley, all one word. You can find me, Martin McKay, on Twitter at MCKEAY. And you can find the first organization at first.org, F I R S T D O T O R G. You can also find more information about First and the First Impressions Podcast at first.org. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.